So throughout my entire life, my dad has always written me letters. And as we have gotten into the 21st century, the handwritten letter and his squiggly cursive writing has been used less often. Sometimes I get an email. You know, my dad has embraced the 21st century with email. Um, but even an email from your dad is a blessing, right? Actually, he's not, he's not my dad. He's my daddy. He's my daddy. That's my southern way of calling him my dad. But his letters always end the same way. You are the joy of my life. Love, daddy. And so I've been thinking about letters as I've been thinking about having to teach this review lesson in Philippians. Um, my dad would write to me out of the joy that he has for me, and what we see in Paul is that he is writing the church in Philippi to encourage them out of the joy of his heart, even though his current situation is anything but joyful. So we've got a lot to cover today, 34 verses. So we're going to dive in. So what do we have in Philippians 1? Um, the whole, that whole chapter, and then chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So what do we have? We have a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. We know that he was most likely writing from a Roman prison. Now, scholars debate exactly which prison it is. Um, sometime around A.D. 61, written to the saints in Philippi, which is the church. It was a church founded by Paul. And this church had generously supported his ministry. Now, if you look up in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40, you can get all the founding information um, about the members of that church. They talk about Lydia, and they talk about the prison guard that was converted and all of that stuff. We don't have time to go back to that today, but um, it is there for your reading enjoyment. So now, so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi to encourage them. And you can just tell there is a deep affection that he has for these people and it, as it comes through in this brief letter. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 begin the letter with a formal greeting. Can someone read Philippians 1, 1 to 2? Okay, so this letter is coming from, who's it coming from? And Timothy. And they identify themselves as servants of Christ. So this is the normal way to start a letter. Like today, we don't start letters this way, but back in the day, that's how you would start your letter with an identification of saying, hey, it's me. I'm writing you this letter. Um... I recently heard R.C. Sproul talk about Paul, and he said that Paul was one of the most brilliant thinkers of all time. He said by the time he was 21 years old, he would have had the equivalent of two PhDs. So he was brilliant, and he was so gifted, and yet in this letter, he refers to himself as a servant of Christ. 
the, for the one who truly is worthy of praise. And I just think about that, and I think what humility, you know, this very learned, accomplished man is saying, I am but a slave. In other letters, Paul feels the need to kind of establish his leadership in the church. He will say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing to you. I mean, it's much more authoritative. In this letter, there doesn't seem to be any need for that establishment of his, of, of his authority. There's an affection here between the, him and this church. There's a personal connection and a bond. And they were very precious to him. The authorship mentions Timothy, who we know was like a son to Paul, a trusted companion and partner in ministry. And I will tell you, everyone needs a Timothy in their life. So if we look at the second part of verse 1, it says that the letter is written to who? Who's it written to? Yeah, God's holy people, the saints, and who else? Overseers and the deacons. So not only was this message for the church, but it was also for the church leadership. And I just find it interesting that that church was organized in the same way that our church is organized. We have saints, we have overseers, which are our elders, and we have deacons who serve. And then in verse 2, we get our official salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul used a traditional Greek um, greeting, which was grace, uh, grace to you. That was a, that's the way Greek people would um, talk to each other. He combined that with a traditional Jewish greeting, peace to you or shalom, that's what they would say. And then he created this distinctly Christian greeting, making it all you know, point to God, the source of both grace and peace. Steve Lawson says that in other words, Paul is saying, may the fullness of the Holy Spirit be upon you. I don't know why I didn't just say that, but okay. All right, so let's go into verses 3 to uh, 11, and we see Paul just jumping right into prayer. That's a lot of words. <laughs> now, if you have read much of Paul's writing, you know that it is just like him to break out in prayer and praise anytime he gets really excited or emotional about something. He will be talking about one thing, and then bam, he's like, oh, and we praise God for this and this and this. And um, it's just, I can just imagine the, as, he's, as the, the scribe is probably trying to write really fast to get all of the things that he is saying. But it is just like him to break out in praise. 
Um, and that's what, we, that's what he's doing here. I mean, he can't even start his letter of what he really wants to say before he's like, I am just thanking God for you. And y'all know I love the New Living Translation. It should not be your only. It should not be your only. We, we love the ESV too. But I just feel like you get a real sense of Paul's love and joy that he has regarding the church when you read these verses in the New Living Translation. He says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. And why is he so thankful for them and so joyful? Why is that? What does it say in verse 5? Yeah, because of their their partnership with him in the gospel. And y'all, like I have one of those rare circumstances where my calling and my occupation line up. That is so rare and it is so precious. And don't think for a minute that I don't realize the, the, the greatness of that opportunity from God and his, and his generosity to me to be able to do that. Um, it is my pleasure and it is my paycheck and that is wonderful. Um, and I can really relate to Paul as he's talking about you know, the joy that he has in their partnership. Um, you know, this past fall, I was so overwhelmed just with all the different tasks and all the things and, um, that were going on. And there were some weeks I really had to pray myself through it. And some of you really prayed me through it. And I, uh, I appreciate that. But I can remember just being thankful to the point of tears when someone would come up to me and say, here, let me help you with that. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. You know, um, because they were partnering with me to shepherd God's flock. Like I say that y'all are my sheep. Y'all really aren't my sheep. I mean, you're God's sheep, but he's asked me to lead you. And it's a lot and I can't do it by myself. And so I can really relate to Paul here. He is overflowing with joy. And that's the same joy I experience every time someone says, let me come and help you. And I'm like, yes, thank you. Um, The church in Philippi wanted to come alongside him in his ministry. And you know, we were made to work. We were made to work. Adam and Eve had jobs um, in in the garden, right? And there is such great joy um, when you can work together for something that has eternal conse- you know, internal consequences, I guess it's not really the right word, but that's what comes to mind, um, with your brothers and sisters, when you are partnering together with other people and you are fulfilling your mission, as Matt talked about on Sunday, there is such joy in that. And so as we just kind of move on, we look in verse 6, and we see Paul confidently encouraging them that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. He says, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. In God's timing, the good work of sanctification in the believer's life will be complete. Y'all have heard me say this uh, over and over. I'm not where, we, where I want to be or I need to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. And everyone, that should be every one of us. That should be our story. And so we press on toward the prize of the upward call of Christ. Does that sound familiar? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, that's our theme. Remember, press on. So 
so verses 7 and 8, again, they show Paul's affection and joy for the Philippians. This affectionate love is what sets us apart from non-Christians. It's a deep, heartfelt, emotional longing for the people there. Again, I love my New Living Translation. It just gives us a little bit more richness and insight. In verse 7, he says, You have a special place in my heart. That's that deep love. You share with me the special favor of God. That's a deep connection or a bond. They have these shared experiences. And there is nothing like a shared experience to try to bring people together. Um, Verse 8, he repeatedly tells them he loves them and longs for them with the tender compassion of Jesus Christ. Don't you want people to think of you that way? It's like being wrapped up in warm fuzzies all the time. And so we get to verses 9 to 11, and we get to a specific prayer request for the church at Philippi. I'm going to read this one in the New Living Translation. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. All right, so there's a list here. What is his specific prayer for them? What's the first one? That their love will abound over uh, more and more. Or in the New Living, it says overflow more and more. What else? How are they going to grow? Knowledge and understanding. They're going to live what kind of lives? Pure and blameless lives filled with the fruit of what? Righteousness. Bringing glory to who? Yeah. This is his prayer. Paul is praying for spiritual growth in them. They likely had day-to-day prayer requests. We all have day-to-day prayer requests for things like sickness or travel or problems at work or parenting issues or parent issues, whatever. But Paul, in his prayer for the church at Philippi, he is praying for spiritual things, not these earthly things. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray for the earthly things. Of course we do. Because God cares about them. He cares about every little thing. But I think that it shows us that if we pray for the spiritual things first, and if if, if those requests are answered, if we are asking God for more wisdom and knowledge and depth of insight, if he gives us that, then we're better equipped to deal with those daily tasks, those earthly tasks. Um, Remember when Morgan shared this just profound statement, and I think she copied it from somebody else, but she said, she asked us, are we going to magnify our problems or are we going to magnify God through our problem or something like that, right? Steve Lawson, he, he said about this, these verses, verses 9 to 11, he said, These petitions should guide each one of us in our intercessions for others. May God use these verses to direct the intensity and content of our prayers. And this is kind of off the script here, but I have been reading in my daily, um, my daily Bible reading. I was reading through Daniel, and I just had to stop and 
ponder this for a moment. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, uh, Gabriel shows up uh, to, tell, um, to tell Daniel, hey, I got a vision for you. But this is what he says to him. He says, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. And I think in a, in a different translation, it says, um, when, you, when you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God. I mean, Daniel was in exile and he was in, you know, I mean, they changed his name and he was in charge of all these things. I'm sure he had a lot of day-to-day -day challenges and things that he was lifting. But if you look in that, if you listen to that passage, it says, when you started to pray, when you set your mind to understanding and wisdom, your prayers were heard. I'm not saying that God doesn't hear our, our, all of our prayers, but those prayers in particular, I think the Lord delights in answering. And so use verses 9 to 11 as a guide for praying for spiritual things. So let me repeat that. Knowledge asks what is right. Discernment asks what is best. I love that. If I said it, it was the Lord, because I don't remember saying that. So, <laughs> but, but I love that. Knowledge asks what is right. Discernment asks what is best. Somebody write that down for me. Okay, I love that. Okay, so just... Just tuck that in the back of your mind. We're going to get to that, uh, the, that whole passage and prayer later. Okay. So we're going to keep moving on in our scripture because remember we have 34 verses to get through. Okay. So now we are in verses 12 to 18. Who has that passage? All right, so some key concepts in the passage. These are our bullet points. Paul is in prison. He is in chains. But God, oh, that's a familiar passage too, isn't it? But God is using it to spread the gospel. Preaching the gospel is primary. Motivations are secondary. Therefore, what do we do? Okay, we can say it. What's the last word? Rejoice. 
Therefore, I will continue to rejoice. Right? This is one of those applications of Romans 8.28, where we know that God uses all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And God was, I mean, God, God called Paul to preach the gospel. Paul doesn't care that he's in prison because him being in prison means that people in prison are hearing the gospel. The ESV Study Bible says Paul realizes the Philippians are grieved over his imprisonment, so he encourages them by pointing out that his circumstances are furthering the proclamation of the gospel. His joy in difficult circumstances is meant to be an example to the Philippians to likewise rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Paul doesn't care that he is in prison, and he doesn't care that he's chained. And he doesn't even care that some people are preaching the gospel out of jealousy and envy and trying to hurt him. He's like, who cares? Chains, schmains. I don't care. The gospel is getting out there. Souls are being um, saved. Hallelujah. That's his attitude. And so, ladies, the hard question is, when you look at your trials and your chains, do you think who cares about this trial? God is going to be glorified through this. Let me rejoice while this chain is holding me because I'm using it to share Christ with the world. Like, who does that? Nobody. Paul did. We don't do that. I mean, we rarely have that view when we're going through a trial because, quite frankly, pain hurts. It's hot in the fire. It's not fun. But if we can try to pull out and look at our situation from that 10,000 foot view. I mean, I think that's what God, I think that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to look at whatever we're going through from an eternal lens. We don't rejoice because the fire is hot. We don't rejoice because we are in pain. No, but we do rejoice because through the fire, Christ is proclaimed. That's, that is what we rejoice in. We don't rejoice in suffering. That sucks. Nobody wants that. But we rejoice in what God is going to do through that. I just listened to a podcast yesterday on prayer. Um, and they were talking about Johnny Erickson Tata. Everybody knows about, she had a catastrophic um, swimming accident, broke her neck, as a has been a quadriplegic now, I think, for almost 50 years. And they were just talking about how, like, without that event, she would not have the ministry that she has and to be able to reach so many people with the gospel. And I, I have listened to interviews with her. I haven't ever read her book, but in her interviews, she has talked about how there, it's not always, oh, I rejoice for this. You know, it's not always like that. But when she can pull out and look at her situation, she can thank God for the work that he has done through the situation. And that's the attitude that Paul is giving to the, Philipp the church in Philippi. And there's a reason that he wrote those words and that we have them today. He wants us to see that. He wants us to have that in mind. We're not going to do it perfectly. And we're going to have rotten days. We are. Um, 
But if we can keep our eyes on the Lord and we can ask him to draw near to us in the fire, then we're not going to get burned. And then we can rejoice in what God is going to do through it. Amen? Amen? Okay. Oh, I got lost. Sorry about that. (laughs) I did not write any of that part down. It just came out. Anyway. Okay. So let verse 18 be your guide through your trial. The ESV says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So in your circumstance, in every way, proclaim Christ, and in that rejoice. Okay, moving on. Verses 19 to 26. Who has that? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this would turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on my account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. Okay, so this is that very memorable passage where Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you are not a Christian, that is crazy talk. Right? I mean, who who says that? Nobody, except Paul and Christians. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Steve Lawson says, you must know that the end of your life is certain before you will joyfully risk danger day by day. The end of your life must be secure before the present can be stable. It is only when you know that death will usher you into the presence of God that you will live with fearless faith. In his mind, Paul is faced with two terrific, awesome choices. Live for Christ, i.e. living his life the way God intended for fulfilling his call to preach the gospel, or to die in Christ, being graduated to glory, something better than life in a broken body in a broken world. Death for the Christian is only the beginning. And in this passage, we see this brilliant man of God talking about the benefits of death. And he really has to think about which is better. It just cracks me up. I can just imagine him going, hmm, I just don't know. Which is better? He knows the church needs him, but he also knows God is waiting for him. And the church in Philippi is worried about him because he's in prison, and he's in prison encouraging them. I mean, this is truly a countercultural mindset. And then we get to verses 27 to 30. Some 
technical difficulties there. Okay, all right. <laughs> So in this passage, Paul is encouraging the church to walk in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. I call this the prime directive. Honor God in everything that you do. And Paul then gives them some specific ways that they can work this out. In verse 27, be united with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together, not separately, for the gospel. Verse 28, don't let your enemies intimidate you. Be united don't be afraid of them. Verse 29, remember that suffering for Christ is a privilege of being in Christ. And verse 30, hey, we are in this together. You've seen me struggle. I'm still struggling. Don't lose heart. Now, two examples from this passage come to mind, and I shared one of them a couple weeks ago, actually, I don't know, more than a month ago, in our evening Bible study. It just came to my mind as, as we were talking through this passage, and then when I looked it up, to give you guys some more, I found out that I remembered the story wrong, but I'm going to go with my example anyway. Do y'all remember the movie Monsters, Inc.? Okay. All right. So in the movie Monsters, Inc., you have Sully, which is this big blue monster, you know, and then you, and his job is to scare children. But Boo is not afraid of Sully. And again, I remembered it wrong. So in the Elizabeth version of Monsters, Inc., this is, this is the picture I want you to have. Okay, you've got Sully, this big monster, and he's, you know, and Boo is sitting there going, ha, 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 look at you. <laughs> you know, and so the, in, in, in Elizabeth's story, the scarier that Sully gets, the funnier Boo thinks he is. And think about that. Like, that the enemy wants to scare us and wants to intimidate us. But if we were so confident in our God that we could just laugh at the enemy and all his shenanigans, well, my goodness, it would frustrate the snot out of him and, you know, and just get deflated and hopefully leave us alone. But yeah, it takes the power away. You know, he's trying to be big and scary and you're like, ha you know, it's like, oh, I'm just going to leave. I think that's what Paul is talking about. He had no idea about Monsters, Inc. or any of that stuff. But that's the image that I see. Don't be afraid of the enemy. He has no power over you unless you give it to him. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Right, it's a privilege. Suffering is a privilege of Christ, and um, I, I, so in that vein, that was a perfect segue into. Um, so, 
from verse 29, it was talking about suffering for Christ. Um, here's another example. So Juan, Juan Elias Rusco is a Love Life director in Chicago. He faithfully stands on the sidewalk in front of Chicago's busiest abortion clinic week after week after week, and he preaches the gospel, and he is so bold. His testimony is amazing. I highly recommend y'all hearing it because he came out of a LGBTQ lifestyle, and the Lord just has done amazing work with him. But anyway, I, I, he did this video. Um, well, let me back up. Recently, Chicago passed an ordinance that you are not allowed to hand out any kind of material to anybody within so many feet of an abortion clinic. So it's very targeted to try to keep people from handing out hope-filled messages. You know, um, the Love Life material has got hope and it's got the gospel and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so this video comes on. I don't know what to expect on the video. And it pops up and Juan's like, he's like, yo, yo, yo got my brothers here they just got arrested for sharing the gospel and he was like he you know he was like really excited he's like this is so exciting i can't wait to see what god is going to do with my two brothers here this is great and i'm sitting there going wow i mean like they are not phased at all they, they are like, yeah, we got arrested and we're going to go and we're going to, you know, do whatever they tell us to do. We're not going to stop. Um, think about it. They could go to jail. They could have fines against them. That could affect their livelihood. I don't know what their family situations are, but they're like, yay, we got arrested for sharing the gospel. Again, I think that's the picture of what Paul is trying to tell the church there in Philippi. It's a privilege it's a privilege to be persecuted for sharing the gospel. All right. Finally, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. So in addition to being united in the faith against the enemies of the church, we are to be united in faith with our brothers and sisters within the church. Remember, we are not arguing about carpet. We are not. We're not going to do it. And in these verses, Paul gives us some examples of how to do that. Be encouraged by belonging to Christ. Be comforted by his love. Have fellowship with one another in the spirit. Be tenderhearted and compassionate to one another. Love one another. Work together in unity. Don't be selfish. Be humble. And look out for others. It's a long list. I summarized this passage for you a couple weeks ago where I said in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. That's from my man, Hank Hanegraaff. So we have just done a flyover of 34 verses. And I remember thinking, when we, way back when we did our study of Romans, I remember thinking, man, Paul sure does use a lot of words to convey his message. So I have condensed these 34 verses for you. Are you ready? This, if I had written the letter, here we go, right? Hey there, church. 
It's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. May the fullness of the Holy Spirit be upon you. I am so thankful for you. I pray for you all the time. You guys rock. I pray you will grow and mature spiritually. And hey, I know you're worried about me in prison, but seriously, I'm good. Did you know that because I'm here, the gospel is being preached? That's so exciting. It doesn't matter to me if I live or die because either way, God is going to be glorified. Staying here means I get to be with you, but dying means I get to be with Christ. I'm a winner. I can't lose. So take heart, church. Honor God in everything you do. And here's a list of ways to do that. Don't be afraid of your enemies. God is greater. Show them you are his by being united against your enemies and being united with one another. Be encouraged because of Christ. Be kind and tenderhearted. Be humble. Take care of each other. And you're going to have to come back next week to hear the rest of this letter.